The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we have these three practices, and it's just good, like whatever aspect of integrity you're working with, you know, just to remember that there's the more simple, more grounded version, like just learning to restrain ourselves from not doing what we know is not helpful. And then the positive, learning that I can aim my mind toward being a saint. I can always aim in that direction. This is why it's so nice to see the goodness in others, too, because we see what's possible. We see somebody dealing with a lot of, like they have cancer, they have some terrible uh, physical situation going on, and they just are, in that moment at least, that we're observing, are just handling it with a lot of integrity, a lot of patience, a lot of forgiveness. And it's like an inspiration. Oh, I know if it's possible for them, it must be possible for me to handle difficult situations in the same way. And then other moments, this not trying to be good as the ultimate expression of integrity, not trying to stop being bad and start being good. So just giving freedom to the personality. It doesn't mean that our uh, expression will be perfect. It just will allow us actually to tease out the most subtle aspects of greed, anger, and delusion from our, action, from our behavior, basically. Because when I'm busy trying to be good or busy trying not to be bad, it's hard for wisdom to do the more subtle work at seeing the seeds of greed, anger, and delusion in the mind. It's easier to see that when we're just letting things happen. But like I said, that, that comes later. Not, that's not our first spiritual move, to just let it rip. This is an interesting sutta. Um, it doesn't involve the Buddha. It involves one of the monks at the time of the Buddha. And... Uh, one of the nature spirits, uh, yakas, they're called, uh, and uh, sort of an interesting little discourse. So there's uh, these nature spirits uh, addressing one of the bhikkhus. This lotus blossom which you sniff, though it has not been offered to you, is thus something that has been stolen. You, sir, are a stealer of scent. So now we're talking about very subtle stealing here, right? So you can just imagine a monk, a nun, a lay person walk in. There's a beautiful garden of lotus blossoms floating there, and right. And but there's the the thing is there's greed in the mind. Oh, I like it. I want it. It's beautiful, right? And uh, so the bhikkhu, the Buddhist monk in this story, is. Is a little bit defensive. He goes, but I don't take, nor do I break. I sniff the lotus from afar. So really, what reason have you to call me a stealer of sense? He who uproots them by the stalk and consumes their pale, the pale lotuses, the one engaged in such cruel work, why do you not say this of him? Right? I'm just sniffing a flower. Leave me alone. So this little nature sprite, this nature spirit, says to the monk, 
A person who is ruthless and cruel, defiled like a workman's garment, to him my words would mean nothing. But it's fitting I speak to you. For an unblemished person who's always pursuing purity, even a hair tip of evil seems to him as large as a cloud. And so now the bhikkhu is sort of getting what's going on. Truly, O Yaka, which is this kind of spirit, this kind of uh, entity, you know me. You have concern for my welfare. Do please speak again whenever you see such a thing. So basically telling this spirit, you know, if you ever see me kind of acting out my greed, anger, and delusion, even in this really subtle way, please point it out to me. And this is the great line. The spirit responds, I don't live to serve upon you, <laughs> nor will I do your work for you. You should know for yourself, O monk, how to go along the good path. So this is uh, you know, important because you know, a lot of us, you know, the kind of people that would show up for a Buddhist studies class, you know, we're not necessarily, hopefully, not you know, slandering other people, put them down, lying outrageously in our lives, using our words as weapons. Hopefully we're not doing that, or we're hopefully not talking endlessly, idly, filling up space because we're afraid of silence. And we're not stealing, hopefully, and we're not killing and harming, hitting when people make us mad. But probably in all kinds of little ways, we're acting out our greed, anger, and delusion. And if we really understood, like this is the thing, is we don't necessarily understand the danger of acting out greed. Like I'll notice um, how much on the surface delight there can be about, you know, fantasizing about something, for example, a cabin on the South Shore, or even something even seemingly more noble like the renovation at Common Grounds Retreat property getting started, or even better, getting done. You know, it's like, oh, we got this great place, people are practicing, and everybody's happy and becoming wise and kind. And uh, it seems like that kind of fantasy that kind of greed, like having a, a mental vision, an image, and liking it. It seems so harmless. But we don't realize that uh, whenever our mind justifies greed, whenever our mind justifies aversion or fear, whenever our mind justifies being disconnected or distracted or in denial, that it's sort of a slippery slope. It just makes it easier to do it more, to do it in a, to act it out in a more unskillful or unwholesome way, a way that actually has real consequences. A lot of you, some of you at least in the room, do prison work, uh, teach meditation in the prisons. Maybe raise your hand if you're one of those people who teach in the prisons. So several people, and there are a number of people who aren't here tonight that do that work, that come to the Buddhist Studies program. And uh, one of the things, I've done a little of that work, but one of the things that people who do a lot of that prison work and really have gotten to know a lot of the inmates will say is like, 
how in a certain moment of their life, when it's like a perfect wave, all the triggering conditions are there, and they end up stealing, they end up shooting, they end up doing something that was unskillful, and they get caught, and their life forever changes. And I, I can think of many moments in my life where just a hair tip, as they say in this verse, right? Just if something had just could have happened, like maybe my mind was somewhat intoxicated and I could have had an accident that ended up like killing people. Or like that could have happened, right? How many of us drove when we were somewhat intoxicated and it's just luck that our mind wasn't required to be really nimble. Probably almost everybody has been somewhat intoxicated, not perfectly clear. Or even like saying something to somebody because our mind is somewhat distracted or intoxicated or whatever it might be. So when we're, why would anybody, knowing the danger, knowing what, the force of greed, the force of anger, the force of distraction, delusion, knowing what that can set in motion, why would we want to grease that tendency? Why would we want to strengthen that tendency in our mind? What would be the ultimate value of doing that? So let's just reflect about this in terms of speech for a few moments, and then uh, if we have time, we'll look at the fifth precept. And we talked briefly about it last week, but then I mentioned, you know, the Buddha has this list of skillful things to talk about and unskillful things to talk about. It's sort of funny um, because it seems like there's not too much to talk about. And I mentioned, you know, you don't talk about politics or robbers, crime. You don't talk about celebrities or heroes. You don't talk about the armies and the battles the armies are fighting. You don't talk about scary stuff. You don't talk about fashion. You don't talk about food and drink. You don't talk about furniture, scents and garlands, you know, things that we adorn ourselves with. We don't talk about relatives, vehicles, villages, towns. We don't talk about attractive or unattractive people. We don't gossip, tales of the dead, or uh, philosophical discourses, or about the origins of the world. (laughs) (laughs) What do we talk about? Wanting little, modesty, seclusion, non-entanglement, energy or persistence, virtue, concentration, discernment, release, and knowledge and vision of release. So here's a text from the Buddha. Why should you not do this? Such talk, so he's talking about the things you shouldn't talk about, shouldn't talk about. Such talk, practitioners, is not related to the goal. It is not fundamental to the holy life, you know, the path of awakening does not conduce to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, tranquility, higher knowledge, awakening, or to Nibbana. When you have discussions, practitioners, you should discuss suffering, the arising of suffering, its cessation, and the path that leads to this freedom. Why is that? Because such talk is related to the goal. It conduces to disenchantment, to liberation. This is the task you must accomplish. So I mentioned last week, this is from Sylvia, <coughs> you know, just as a, 
a way to bring speech into view, like to pay attention, is just to wonder in an ongoing way, like, is what I'm about to say an improvement on not saying it, on being silent? Like, does what I'm about to say, and you know, we can't even have that about to moment unless we're mindful. So we're not going to catch it very, I mean, to be honest, how many moments are we going to be there in the about to moment? We're about to say something to somebody. When we're on retreat, like at Prairie Farm, Common Grounds Retreat Property, where there's some talk, you might notice those about to moments, because there aren't too many moments when you're talking, so you tend to notice it. But hopefully in daily life we could catch it several times in a day. I'm about to say something to my partner, about to say something to a colleague at work, about to say something to the cat. Yes, some of us talk to cats. <laughs> and then, and then the, the very relevant question, this is what mindfulness reveals. Without mindfulness, there's no space of choice. Like, is this impulse, this intention to say something, what does it taste like morally? Like, what's the moral or ethical taste? Before I act on it, can I tell, like, is this setting something skillful in motion or not? There's a little space. This is what the wisdom of mindfulness reveals, is like, there's a discernment, like, is this going to be helpful or not? Because if it isn't, let's restrain, or let's aim toward something that I trust. Oh, this intention I trust. But this intention to say this, I don't trust. Because the thing is, there are many intentions. But the mind, when our mind isn't mindful, we just notice, I mean, often we just act it out. But if there's just some feeble mindfulness, we'll just notice the most predominant intention. But when there's more stable mindfulness, we'll notice there's lots of intentions. There's the one with the most momentum, but that doesn't mean it's the most skillful. The one that is most skillful might be like, not very strong, but it's there and it can be acted out, but it has to be seen, it has to be recognized. Oh, I could do this, I could say this, I could think this instead of thinking that or saying that or doing that. There's an option here. I don't just have to act out what the biggest force of habit is. Right? So... Is what I'm about to say an improvement on silence? And I think it's Sylvia in a different article um, from where she says about an improvement on silence. She has different levels. So entry level is, you know, I'm not going to, just in terms of speech now I'm talking, this fourth precept, undertaking the training to refrain from false speech, from harsh speech, from slanderous speech, like speech that's a weapon that is trying to harm or hurt somebody, and speech that's idle, like not useful, not helpful, not adding anything. So these are the four kinds of wrong speech. It's not true. It's harsh. Right? It's just like an irritant for those who are hearing it. It's slanderous, so it's, its aim is to hurt, and idle. It doesn't have any value. It's useless. We're talking about things that we don't need to talk about. It's not helpful. So entry level is just 
uh, eliminating slander in all of its forms. Like, I, I'm going to restrain myself from using speech as a weapon to hurt. And this is surprisingly hard because although we might not, in a very obvious way, slander somebody, but I notice in all kinds of ways, and like, I don't know if anybody read, I uh, sent the link out last week to a bunch of reflective questions about right speech. And one of the reflective questions was to look at how you ask a person questions. Because we can even ask seemingly useful questions or appropriate questions, but there's a kind of prosecutorial, says the lawyer, (laughs) flavor. You know, it's like, you know, there's an aggress- there can be an aggressiveness even in what might, with a different tone, be a very natural question, appropriate question. But there's a putting somebody in a box or treating people harshly by even a- the way we might ask somebody a question, a kind of judgmental tone to it. So there's all kinds of ways we use, uh, maybe unconsciously, but we use our words that hurt, that cause harm. So we can just undertake the training, like I'm not going to do that. I'm going to really train myself to be sensitive. Because it's not enough to say, oh, it wasn't my intention to hurt you. Because it's not like part of having the intention not to hurt, not to harm, is being willing to pay attention, being willing to be curious about like what's the actual effect of my words. We actually have to check. We have to look. We have to listen. You might even have to ask, you know, how did that just land? Was that hurtful? And a lot of times, you know, Minnesota nice people will say, no, that, no problem. But that even that doesn't mean it wasn't that it, that it was skillful. It might have still been unskillful, but the person doesn't feel safe letting us know how that felt, how that was. So this is just the basics training this fourth precept in right speech. It's just I'm not going to use my words as weapons. And then the other, the sort of next highest level, like when we get pretty good at that, is... Um, It's just getting interested. It's just like bringing another thing into view. I'm going to pay attention whenever I'm talking about another person. I'm going to get really interested in my motivation. Why am I talking about this person? Now, this is so interesting because this would mean even like talking about a particular politician, right? Like where we just feel it's so appropriate that when we're talking about a politician, it's okay to gossip. Like on that level, would anybody, like, I mean, most people know who maybe I'm referring to, but <laughs> if we talked that way about our brother, our sister, or somebody at Common Ground, you know, it would be gossip, or it would be sort of unskillful speech. But for that person, it's okay to be putting them down. It's okay to be disparaging. It's okay to be putting them in a box, like eliminating their humanity because we're pretty sure they don't have any, right? Isn't that right? (laughs) And this is like 
so it's so interesting to whenever we're talking about somebody to really look at what's going on in the mind. Would I be willing to say what I'm saying to the person? How would that feel? Why don't I say that to the person then, if it's okay? If it's really okay to say what I'm saying to this person, how about that other person? Why not actually say it to them? Because the point is we want to illuminate the underlying, the more subtle underlying, uh, the quality of the motivation, the quality of the intentions in our speech. So we need these kind of training. So the first one is like, I undertake the training. I'm just not going to use speech as a weapon. And then the next is, I'm going to highlight, I'm going to, a little mindfulness spell is going to go off whenever I'm talking about somebody who's not there. Okay, what's going on? And it's just, well, there's going to be like this pause. And it, the other people who we're talking with, they might not even notice it. It could happen, once you get good at it, it can happen in real time. And you're just interested in like, well, what does it taste like? Again, every intention, every motivation, everything that's leading to us thinking, speaking, and acting in the world, there, it's that action of thinking, speaking, and acting in the world, doing things in the world, is driven by intention, and intention has a taste. It either, either will taste skillful in the direction of release, or it will taste unskillful in the direction of contraction. And as practitioners, we learn to recognize that taste. How does that taste? You know, talking about this person. And it's so interesting because a lot of what we tell ourselves is okay. Oh, I'm not, I'm not being mean to that person. It's okay to talk about that person. When I really taste it, I mean, it's not like it's terribly bad, but it doesn't taste, it doesn't have the taste of release. It has the taste of like, no, this isn't, this is not the taste I want to cultivate. This is not the quality of heart I want to cultivate. The kind of way the heart feels when I talk about a person like this, in this way. This is not the imprint or the impression I want to leave on my heart. Normally we're just oblivious, so this sort of next higher level of right speech, we're highlighting it. Honey, speaking to ourselves, honey, let's get interested. And you can resolve this right now if you feel like you're at the second level, like you're pretty good at not using your words as weapons to hurt or harm, then undertake the training. Like Whenever I talk about another person who's not there, I want this little mindfulness spell to go off. And I want to be very interested in like what's the aftertaste? Or what's even better, like what does it taste like before I start talking about that person? What does it taste like while I'm talking about that person? And then if we fail at the first two, what does it taste like after I've just talked about that person? What is that impression that's left in the heart, having just said what I said about that person? And you know, we have all kinds of ways on the surface of disguising what we're doing, dressing it up so it looks like it's appropriate for us to be talking about that person. But if we feel our heart, in a sense, we'll know. It doesn't matter if the other person thinks it's very appropriate what we just said. The question is, what is the actual impression on our heart? 
And I talked about this last week that in terms of morality, it doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. Like They may think you're the most moral, kind, upright person in the whole world. But you have to decide for yourself what's the impression of your speech, your thoughts, and your actions. Because only you will know whether you're acting in a skillful or unskillful way. It's not really anybody else's decision, like whether we're being skillful or not. I mean, it's okay to ask somebody you think is wise, you know, like, how did that seem to you, what I just said or just did, right? That's appropriate to ask a good friend that from time to time. But only to help illuminate, you know, to help us get some of our own confidence that we can see, oh, yeah, I I had my own suspicions that maybe that wasn't helpful, wasn't a good thing to say, so I wanted to check. And I'm, it's useful to have your confirmation that that was off, that wasn't helpful. And then the next, I think Sylvia calls this the very high level of right speech practice, is we're going right to that taste that I mentioned. Was, is what I'm saying, is what I'm about to say, is what I'm saying, is what I've just said, is the intention behind it, the motivation behind it, skillful or unskillful? So now all of our speech just interested in the intention. What's motivating our speech? I notice, for example, and I'm getting better slowly at it, but it's, you know, it's been a gradual process, but I notice in the privacy of my own home with my partner, my spouse, Wynn, that I, I engage, this is a true confession, I engage in idle speech. I just talk about things that don't need to be talked about. Some of it's somewhat playful, and silly, and just filling up space, right? And I can, you know, I can give my rationale. I'm just entertaining my wife, who needs to be entertained, or whatever. <laughs> but really, it's just a habit. And when I've slowly, over time, gotten interested in what does that feel like, usually after the fact, you know, one of the reasons that idle speech is usually followed by idle speech is because when you're just talking to talk, just filling up space with words, it doesn't leave a good impression on the mind and heart. So what do we do? We continue talking because we don't want to feel what we feel. So if we just, it's nice. I think part of the reason I've gotten a little better is when does not respond? So there's that like pregnant silence. (laughs) She used to laugh a lot more. But it was probably mostly just to be kind. Or just because it was awkward. But now there's because there's silence, it's like then I in that sort of pregnant silence, it's like, oh yeah, this is what that feels like. You know, it's like it's subtle, but it's it's pretty clear now, like, well that that's not adding anything. You know, it's not helping anybody. It's not helping me, helping her, making the world a better place. It just leaves this subtle but yucky feeling. And it's, I'm sure a lot of you have noticed this, that when we do let it return to silence, at first it's a really yucky feeling, but then it feels good to not have to run from that feeling, whatever it is. Yeah, Bob. 
But see, that's the whole point, right? To actually see, because maybe when you were filling space, what you were really doing in your own particular way is saying, I love you, or I love being here with you right now, or isn't life delightful, right? So the only way whether the only way we'll know whether what we just said, just keep it on the level of speech, the only way we'll know whether our speech is skillful or not is to develop a sensitivity either right before we speak, while we're speaking, or right after we speak, what impression. So in that sense, it is objective because you can only know. Only you can know. And you can only know if you're willing, either before, while, or after, to discern, to taste, to sense the impression, the quality of that intention or that motivation that led to the speech that you just spoke. What is the karmic effect in the mind stream? What's left behind in the mind? Is it a sense of intimacy, sense of joy, a sense of kind of erotic fear, like an uneasiness with the silence that's been then deepened or reinforced through the acting out of that kind of speech? So in Buddhism, we do talk, or the Buddha does talk about morality being objective. It's not objective in the sense of it being imposed by an outside force. It's objective within our own heart or mind. That's what I meant earlier when I said it isn't up for, it isn't the wholesomeness or unwholesomeness of our speech isn't a function of what other people think. Now, that doesn't, if I do something that some speech that's unskillful, other people may realize it. And it may have all kinds of external consequences, my unskillful speech. But even if they don't notice it was unskillful, it's made an impression. By definition, if it's unskillful, it's made an impression on our heart that has ill effect on our heart. That's how we know, that's the very definition that it's unskillful is its effect on our heart or on the mind stream. Like the mind going forward has shifted, has been impressed, has been conditioned by that speech. So what is the effect of that conditioning? Positive towards release, negative towards constriction. What's the effect of what was just said? And the conditioning element is not so much the words, but the motivation and intention behind the words we spoke. Because people can say, you know, some people just have really gruff personalities, but they can be, you know, they can speak in ways that are really wholesome, right? And other people, they just have a silver tongue, but they can use it to cut, right? Even though on the surface it looks so sweet. And then the very ultimate high level, according to Sylvia, is speech that's not prepackaged. So this is what I meant about that third way of practicing integrity, where what we're really doing is trusting, not trying to be good, not trying, because me being dependent on speaking skillfully gets in the way of being really intimate. And the only way for me to truly speak skillfully is to be completely intimate in the moment. That's where the skill is going to come from. And if, I'm, if I've got this overlord of me wanting to speak, this is sort of what you were maybe pointing to, Bob. Like, if I'm trying, 
then that actually can get in the way of being skillful. So the ultimate right speech is not planning it. But what we're left with is a profound intimacy. So we feel the implications of each word that's spoken, right? Because we're putting all of our eggs in the basket of awareness. So we, there's like we're on the very steep learning curve because we're just feeling every ill effect from speech that's not wholesome and every positive effect from speech that's wholesome. And uh, this is the way that Sylvia describes that, like being able to taste the skillfulness or unskillfulness. She talks about uh, right speech is supported by experiencing the discomforting isolation of guile and the ease of candor. Right? Isn't that, that's a nice way to think about it, the um, discomforting isolation of guile. So whenever the intention to speak is unskillful, there's an isolating quality of that. It's like we're using speech to get something from me. Right? It's a tool of the self-centered habits, self-centered drama. Right? about our neediness, our wanting to control, our wanting to get rid of, or wanting to get. And all of that self-centered activity is isolating. We feel more separate, more apart, more alone. So you may be saying the most lovely things to your partner, your good friend, or whatever it is. But if, if it's unskillful, then there's an isolating quality to it. Like I'm being nice, because I want you to like me, right? I'm charming you. I'm saying nice things about you. You know, I really like your hair, or I really, you know, like what you said. You're so wise. But if I'm feeling my heart, I'm noticing that, as she calls it, the discomforting isolation of guile. Guile, G-U-I-L-E, like it's sort of manipulative quality. There's a self that wants something. And that reinforcing of the self is, feels like being isolated, apart, separate. This is the basic spiritual pain, feeling apart. As opposed to speech that removes the sense of isolation. She calls it um, the ease of candor. And then later, Sylvia talks about the manifestation of intimacy. That's the fruit of wise speech or wholesome speech, that it supports the direct and immediate experience of intimacy or the ease of candor, like not having to protect me, not having to get anything from me. That, that can only happen when we're already feeling whole and safe. Not that the world is safe, not that insecurity is gone, but I'm okay with insecurity. I'm okay with uncertainty. Because we're, we've learned how to include it all. We learn how to be in the world that's imperfect. How not to imagine that I can only live in a world that's perfect. That's, that's what justifies all the injustice. And this area of right speech is such a potent place for transformation. I love this line from Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese monk. He says, if you don't want to be changed, 
don't go into dialogue. Because it's like the most, for us, human beings, as social beings, it is really, for us, the very real playground of wholesome and unwholesome. Like in terms of karma, most of our karma revolves around speech. I mean, just think about how much wholesome and unfortunately unwholesome stuff has been in, has set in motion through speech all the time. It's really, for humans, the weapon of choice and the healing tool. I mean, words can really heal. We feel that sometimes, right? Haven't we been moved by people's words, like deep, cathartic movements because of something somebody said to us or something we ourselves said? Isn't that true? Haven't you felt that way with words? Deeply healing and deeply, you know, divisive. The Buddha said, better than a thousand sentences is one sensible phrase on hearing which one becomes peaceful. And I just have one last thing I wanted to read from the Buddha and then open it up for the last few minutes. So next week we'll do the uh, fifth precept. Here's uh, a teaching from the Buddha. They speak the truth, are devoted to the truth, reliable, worthy of confidence. They never knowingly deceive others for the sake of their own advantage. What they have heard here, they do not repeat there, so as to cause dissension there. Thus they unite those that are divided, and those that are united they encourage. Concord gladdens them. They delight and rejoice in concord. And it is is concord that they spread by their words. Now, a lot of times when people hear that, they think, well, sometimes we need to speak truth to power. right?" But even that, even though it might be initially hard and hurtful for people to hear what we have to say, can it still be true that the intention is to strengthen community? Can't we say difficult things at times because ultimately it's what the community needs to hear? I think so. So it's really about the intention. It doesn't mean that sometimes we say things and it's really, it's going to upset people. But the intention isn't to upset them. The intention is to move in the direction of deeper community, deeper healing. And And the teaching goes on. They avoid harsh language and speak such words as are gentle, soothing to the ear, loving, going to the heart, courteous and dear, and agreeable to many. They avoid vain talk and speak at the right time in accordance with facts, speak what is useful, speak about right wisdom and right practice. Their speech is like a treasure at the right moment, accompanied by reason, moderate, full of sense. So we have about, well, it's not too much time, six minutes or so. Actually, we don't even have that. I just remembered that uh, Evelyn is going to give a little talk on Donna. So we have time for one person, somebody really wise. 
to summarize some thoughts about right speech. Do you want to say something? Yeah, I want to pass it back. I've been coming to Common Ground for a long time, um, even when it was still in, in your house, Mark. And um, while I think the talk tonight about speech was, was really good and applicable, I think in some ways, in, at least in my life, it's more nuanced than um, the question that um, this class raised for me and that is the question of doing no harm because I eat meat. And I've been, you know, sort of glibly going along, coming here and eating meat and thinking that somehow that wasn't a, a conflict. And when I began to think it, you know, actually is a conflict, my first thought was I shouldn't come here anymore rather than I should stop eating meat. And I'm just wondering if you can speak to that because that to me is such a clear line. You either eat meat or you don't eat meat. Yeah, but I think it's useful not to... Whenever something seems really clear, it's probably not as clear as you think it is, as we think it is. We undertake the training to refrain from killing beings, or we undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. So that's the, that's the statement. We undertake the training. Right? So I think, I mean, I've been for 20 years a really strict vegetarian, and then more for the last 10 years a pretty strict vegetarian, but not a completely strict vegetarian. Um, but I'm, my, my sense of it is that uh, we want to be really honest about our experience. And part of being honest is realizing there's no way not to cause harm. So we really engage this precept, this training not to harm, not expecting that we're going to get to the nth degree of non-harming. Because even if we're completely vegan, I mean, life eats life. Now, I'm not justifying eating meat. I think it's really important when we go shopping for groceries that we discern all of the karmic implications for what we're eating. But I can, I know in my own mind that I can justify eating meat at times. And that doesn't mean it's right. I don't expect it to be morally right. It means that I'm owning the karmic implications for my actions. Right? And I'm not I'm trying not to be superficial about it. Like tell myself a story. It's either okay. This is what I would really avoid. If you think it's okay to eat meat, you're not practicing. If you think it's absolutely wrong to eat meat, you probably need to pay a little bit more attention. Because it's the fixed, we take up a fixed view because we don't want to stay in the practice. Because the practice is a moment-to-moment discerning. And to really look. And that's why, you know, it's interesting, for 20 years, I mean, I didn't eat meat at all. And, uh, and it was simple. But it was fundamentalist. It wasn't that healthy. I mean, not in terms of my diet, but in terms of my mind, that sort of 
you know, fixed idea that it's just I'm the one who doesn't eat meat. So I, I find it more of a, an alive question for me now than it's been for my 30-plus years of practice. But I'm not, I hope people don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I think there's a lot of suffering that happens in the you know, industrial, agricultural settings. I mean, it clearly beings, living beings, are being harmed in the way that we do our farming. And uh, karmically, we're all part of that. And so how do we minimize that? And this is another thing. It's like, so you eat meat, but how much meat? Like, It's like one of the things people do is, why eat meat? So then I can eat as much as I want. But why not? Because we want it clear cut, but it's not clear cut. So we can really like, and what kind of meat do we eat? How much? What do we eat? Where do we buy it? Same with clothes. Who's making our clothes? How are they being treated? There's so many. And here's the thing. It's like, oh, it's just too complicated. But remember, this whole practice is liberating. Getting interested in this training of not harming should be liberating. If it's not liberating, then you need to look at how you're practicing. I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. It should be a liberating thing. You should get more energy from it. It shouldn't be exhausting. It shouldn't exist in your life as this oppressive thing. Oh my God, I got to pay attention to everything. There are worms on the sidewalk. I got to watch out and ants. And, you know, it's like every part of life can get really tight. And that's really harmful for ourselves. So how to live in this world where beings are dying, beings are being born, life is eating life. How to, I mean, what a setup for this training, isn't it? But that, it, what, is, what it really evokes is this profound sensitivity. And this, it kind of breaks our heart wide open. This is where real compassion starts to come forward. Not because we're this perfectly compassionate person like, We've crossed all our T's, dotted our I's. We do all the right things. We support the right charitable organizations. We go to church on Sunday or Common Ground on Sunday. You know, we do all the right things, support all the right organizations, and then we feel good about ourselves. That's a hell realm, really. What we want is a a very um, sort of entering this ambiguous world of undertaking the training not to harm no matter how complicated it gets, and really like coming alive in that investigation. So we could talk all night about it, but I'm going to turn it over to Evelyn so she can share a few thoughts about the practice of dana or generosity, and we do that once during the course. So thanks, Evelyn, for volunteering. So Mark asked me to talk about my experience more than the nuts and bolts. Um, so right now, um, my experience is more focusing on what it's like to receive a gift and what that experience is, because Mark has mentioned that these teachings on this place are a gift that's given freely. And I notice that walking around in life, maybe when I receive a compliment, um, I have kind of a habitual reaction of just paying a compliment back in a really superficial way. And um, even coming here 
just having a sense a little bit of complacency and not really always receiving it. So um, because he asked me to give this talk, I paid attention more to what it feels like to be here and receive this as a gift. And um, coming in the mornings, I just started noticing the building and the thought that went into how to make this a great space to practice. And I thought about the person that put a lot of love into that and a lot of thought into that and thinking, wow, they must have been really inspired and feeling benefited by this and and kind of put themselves wholly into it. And same with noticing the flowers and um, a lot of times just settling in to practice here. Um, I'll glance up and notice the statues and what comes to mind is just the thousands of people in the lineage who dedicated their lives to kindness and well-wishing and that those wishes are for us. Um, and it, it helps me keep going and keeps me inspired and uh, feeling a lot of appreciation. And I was out at Prairie Farm recently practicing and um, feeling moved by the, the love that has gone into that place. And uh, it's just so clear and uh, so present and strong. Um, so right now I think uh, relaxing with receiving is something that I'm aspiring to, and I trust that if I stay in that place that the giving will happen in a good way. Yeah, thank you so much, Evelyn, for sharing your wisdom around the circle of giving and receiving. Most of you know the nuts and bolts, but you can always check with me if you have any questions about how to support the community. But let's just take a few seconds, receive the good community that we're part of right now, this room, all of our fellow practitioners together. Thanks for coming, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.